Welcome to No Baller. I am Chris Rawl. It is Monday, August 9th, the start of a new week. On today's show, the times they are changing in the world of college football, golf, and basketball. Before we get there, I want to start this show in the only place that it can start. Why gambling should be legal in the state of Utah. Now, we have a local team here. They're called the Utah Utes, and I bet them plus 650 to win the Pac-12. Six and a half to one payout. Now, I have a motto. Buy local. You know, that's why I go and I get all my honey here, all the goods that, that I need within my life. I buy local. And according to that same vein, I want to gamble local. So I jump on the Utah Utes because I want somebody to root for within the Pac-12 title race. As I've said before in past segments, I also would love to support a local team. I have a lot of trust with Kyle Whittingham, the football coach there, who has a great track record that speaks for itself. I have belief that Charlie Brewer, the transfer from Baylor, who presumably is going to take over at quarterback, is going to do a fine job. And we have our number one reason today on a Monday, why gambling should be legal in the state of Utah, because it will inspire more state pride within you than drinking a 64-ounce swig soda with five different mix-ins to completion. And now, a word from our favorite sponsor, Traeger Grills. With your masquerading Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. Bob Dylan is the greatest artist who has ever existed. That is not up for debate on this show. I will debate a lot of things. That is the one thing I will not debate. And within his career as a musician, he has written a lot of very timeless anthems that have come to symbolize a lot of things for a lot of people. One of those is The Times They Are Changing, kind of the most symbolic song that's ever been written about just the simple passage of time um, and how things are always changing and you're either kind of with it or you're against it. But regardless of which side you're on, it's always going to be there happening. Uh, and I love this song because I love Dylan, but I also love the subject of change as I've gone over within this show and I'm going to go over today because sports, they're in a constant state of upheaval and change and evolution. And I find it very interesting to examine a lot of the ways that the sports that I love are always shifting and evolving. So I want to start with the sport of college football because 25 years ago, um, 1996, there's a team, Florida Gators. The year prior, they had played my favorite team, Nebraska, within the national title game. Nebraska had beat them, but they were ushering kind of this new style of playing at the time. Uh, this 1996 Florida Gator team that would go on to win the national title. It was the first team that I had really watched. I'm 10 years old at the time where it was passing, passing, passing all the time, and this translated into winning at the highest level. Before that, it was kind of, you run, you play defense. Nebraska perfected that. We'd seen that in the past with Oklahoma and a lot of these other wishbone and triple option teams. Florida was this breath of fresh air at that time. It was Danny Warfel who ended up winning the Heisman Trophy that year. He's winging it all over the yard. At the time, we think, uh, he finishes that season with 3,600 yards and 39 to 13 touchdown interception ratio. And it's funny because as I went and got these stats for this episode, I have this vision in my head of that Gator team and Danny Werfel. Um, and these were incredible numbers at the time. 
And the vision in my head was just free wheeling, 5,000 yards, probably 50 touchdowns, a lot of stuff that we see in present day. And instead, looking at those numbers, they seem paltry compared to what we now see within passing offenses and also what translates to winning in present day. So at the time, there's a lot of teams succeeding in a variety of ways. Florida with the fun and gun. Nebraska, I mentioned, with the triple option attack. Uh, You have your more pro-style based attacks, whether that's a Florida State or Miami. But there was a lot of diversity within the way that offenses played within college. And we fast forward into present day, and that's kind of starting to shift to a more homogenized style. I want to read something from Bill Conley about or Bill Conley of ESPN about kind of the shift that is undertaking or undertaken. In 2016, the overall pass percentage in college football was 49.4%. 12 FBS teams topped 60%, while 11 teams fell under 40%. Of the teams in the Associated Press's year-end top 10, only two, USC and Clemson, were above 50.4%. Alabama was at 46.7%, and three others were lower than that. Most of the top teams still took the time to establish the run. By 2020, just four seasons later, the average pass percentage was up to 52.2%, while 23 teams over 60% and six under 40%. Of the year-end top 10, every team was at 49% or higher. It's modernization complete. Alabama was at 50.8%, even with lots of garbage time rushes with big leads, end quote. So this is just within the last five years. Uh, If you were to take these numbers back to 1996 or even 2006, you would see a drastic gap between that modernization and that leaning into the pass. Uh, Much like basketball has kind of seen the three-point shot transform its game, football is in the midst of this passing revolution where it has become the key to success, both professionally and collegiately. Uh, and, and, and Alabama, who is mentioned within this uh, last five-year transformation, they have kind of, in my mind, come to symbolize this wholesale change from the establish the run era to the establish the pass era. Um, because the transformation they've made in the last decade on the offensive side of the ball is astounding, and it mirrors this transition. Uh, you know, maybe Nick Saban just looked around and said, I I can win any damn way I want and I'll prove it to you. I'll start this way and I'll be this way later on. Uh, Or maybe he, because he's a very smart football mind, kind of sensed the shift that was undergoing and said, all right, we're going to change with the times and we're going to do it better than everybody else. So since 2009, Alabama has won six national titles. And you think back to the start of that, their first title in 2009 and You know the identity of that team and the teams that were to follow. Play defense, uh, have a quarterback who's not doing a lot, hand a ball off to an NFL caliber or Heisman Trophy winning tailback. In 2009, it was Greg McElroy handing the ball off to Mark Ingram. And this was the identity at the time that we knew had won a lot of games in the past for a lot of teams. And also Alabama was in the process of perfecting. Load up a defense with all the NFL talent in the world get an NFL caliber offensive line and an NFL caliber tailback and hand it off, hand it off, hand it off, hand it off. And we're going to win a lot of games and we're going to win a lot of national titles. They follow that similar thought process for many years. 
That caliber of defense, the same kind of doofus-style quarterback, Greg McElroy first, then A.J. McCarron later, handing off to NFL-caliber running backs. Starts with Ingram, but we get Derrick Henry, Trent Richardson, Eddie Lacy. Go down the list of the last 10 years. The Alabama tailback position, it seems like it spawned half of the starting running backs in football. So 10 years ago, 2011, Alabama and LSU play one of those game of the centuries that somehow get played every five years. You know, it doesn't make sense when you think about what a century is, but college football loves doing this kind of stuff. So there's a huge showdown going on in Tuscaloosa, number one, Alabama, number two, LSU, and they play a nine, six game in overtime. Okay. It's three field goals on one side of LSU, two field goals on the other side, Alabama, um, a game that if you watched in the context of present-day football, would not be recognizable for the style of football. However, when you look at the talent on the field, you say this is the most recognizable of games because 45 players within that game would go on to be drafted into the NFL. It's one of the high points uh, within the realm of college football of just the accumulation of talent on the field. However, again... Despite all of this talent, offensively and defensively, you know, you look at the LSU side and you're going, Odell Beckham's in that game and Jarvis Landry and go down the list of all these great players who would go on to have awesome success within the NFL. That game had nothing to do with offense. Again, it was nine to six in overtime. Uh, And coincidentally enough, these two teams, they go and have a rematch that year in the national title game. And it was not much better. Bama wins a 21-0 shutout in another unrecognizable football game on the offensive side when compared to five years later and especially now into present day. I mean, LSU in that game has 92 total yards and five first downs. They don't cross midfield until there's eight minutes left in that game. Uh, The first 15 points of the game for Alabama, they're all field goals. Jeremy Shelley comes in and boots five through, and then Trent Richardson scores a touchdown with four minutes to go. That is the only touchdown scored in over two full football games between these two teams that year. Two teams that, again, yeah, they featured a hell of a lot of talent on the defensive side of the ball. Both teams did. They also featured a hell of a lot of talent on the offensive side of the ball, although we didn't really see that come to as much fruition. So Alabama wins multiple national titles playing this exact style of football. Um, And at the same time, I think because Saban is one of the genius football minds of my time and actually of all time, I think that he starts to understand and grasp where the sport of football and college football is headed. The air, the pass, uh, winging around the yard. Um, The most efficient and explosive way to move the football, period. Uh, He sees it up close in losses to, you know, Hugh Freeze and Ole Miss, who really leaned into that style of play. He sees it up close in a loss to Kevin Sumlin and Johnny Manziel at Texas A&M. And he looks at it and says, all right, we can always recruit the best players. We've shown that easily. So why not tap into all this talent that's available, that's coming up through all these high schools that are playing spread style offenses and throwing it around the yard. Why don't we tap into that and out recruit everybody in that specific area? Uh, So still recruits from them, make ourselves stronger and perfect this style of offense, a spread aired out style of attack something that is a stark contrast to what Alabama was playing at the time. Here, Derrick Henry, run the ball 40 times. Here, Mark Ingram, run the ball 40 times, and then we'll play defense, and we'll beat LSU 21-0 in a national title game. Uh, So if you've watched Alabama play offense within the last few years, 
and you hadn't seen anything since 2011, you'd probably have a heart attack because it's a night versus day style transformation when it comes to that offensive side of the ball. It starts with Tua. Actually, kind of starts with Jalen Hurts, but you really start to see these are the fruits of our labor with Tua and then Mac Jones last year and this stable of NFL caliber wideouts that Alabama recruits, whether that's Jerry Judy or Henry Ruggs or Devontae Smith or Jalen Waddle, Go down the list of all these people who've played within the last three years on that side of the ball. Um, and they win a national title last year. They blow the doors off of every single team in their path. Not with this boa constrictor defense that wins games 21-0 and 28-7 and that kind of stuff. No, Alabama's identity last year was Matt Jones in this offense, and we are going to obliterate you on the offensive side of the ball. And there's nothing that you can do to stop us. We'll score 50 points a game. We'll throw for 400 yards. And there's no team in the nation that is going to be able to put up a fight against us. And that's how the season played out. So Alabama, on their side, the offensive evolution uh, is complete. You know, they've won the national titles with the ground and pound attack. And now we're here in the midst of this passing revolution. And Alabama has perfected that. Uh, their transition on offense mirrors the transition we have seen college football really uh, kind of embrace and undertake. So this change, it's obviously prominently displayed in offensive philosophy. That's the times they are a changing side, while uh, much to the chagrin of a lot of people who are not Alabama fans, the team at the top stays the same. Philosophy shift, but they're still winning. Uh, as they've done with both things. You look out across the preseason top 10 going into this season, and you see a lot of teams that are kind of embracing that same style, that same mentality on offense, whether it's Clemson, who's won national titles in the recent past, whether it's Ohio State, whether it's Oklahoma, who a lot of people think is going to be preseason number one this year, uh, Bama themselves, North Carolina, and Sam Howell go down the list. And interestingly enough, the Georgia Bulldogs are also one of those teams that are leaning that way. Kirby Smart took over there. He's a branch off the Saban tree. He wanted to bring that same style of football to Georgia. Recruit the hell out of the defensive side, play a pro-style conservative, hand it off to the tailback attack. And even he, in the last few years, has realized maybe this isn't in our best interest. Um, maybe choosing Jake Fromm to play quarterback a couple years ago the pro-style passer who can hand it off over Justin Fields, who would go transfer to Ohio State and light the college football world on fire for the last two years. Maybe I can rectify that mistake in present day with a more modernized, uh, see, passing offense. And that's what they're trying to do with JT Daniels, a transfer from USC. And we saw glimpses of that during last year's COVID season. And I think we're going to see more of that this season, you know, if Alabama can do that, Georgia has recruited as well as anybody in the nation for the last five years, Alabama included. So they say, if Alabama can do that, well, then we can do it too. We just need to be better at what we are on offense. And being better in this case means we have to shift our philosophy. Um, this also has created a more homogenized game, which... Some people like, some people don't like. I am somewhat on the fence about. Uh, I know that this change has obviously really drastically occurred. The same times, you know, there's a part of me that goes, ah, maybe I wish there was more diverse offense at the top of college football. You still have that diversity throughout FBS. You still have your triple option teams, Navy and Air Force running that. Uh, you still have, you know, 
alternate versions of the spread that are actually relying upon running or this specific style, whether that's a Tulane or Houston or teams of that ilk. There's a lot of diversity within the sport when it comes to playing offense, but at the top, there's a lot less so. So change is occurring. You know, you get with it or or you leave. That's kind of the basis of the Bob Dylan song, and that's the basis of just following these shifts within a sport. Maybe it's a turnoff to some. Maybe it's a reason to be more interested for others. But for someone like me, it's just something to look at and monitor. I expand my viewpoint to other sports, and I also recognized a couple things over this weekend um, that come to two sports that I really love as well when it comes to change and when it comes to areas maybe that I don't really love that are changing within a sport that I do love. Uh, The... PGA Tour and golf. Talked about it on this show, uh, how it's really become an arms race for length. That's reflected in a lot of their tournaments. Uh, And and as I was watching the St. Jude Invitational this week in Memphis, played at TPC Southwind, a course that's kind of a bomber's paradise, the dartboard PGA Tour style golf, make a lot of birdies. It was just kind of blah. A lot of forgettable holes. I can't distinguish one over the next. It mimics a lot of what I complain about uh, about a lot of these PGA Tour setups in general. There's just a lot of length, and I can't tell what's going on in these holes. There's nothing that distinguishes one from another. There's not distinct features when it comes to the land or the way that you can play a hole. It's just bomb and gouge and bomb and gouge, and it's the least entertaining brand of golf for me and for a lot of people. Now, This weekend's event, it's kind of rescued on that back nine by a very entertaining uh, collapse from Harris English and Bryson DeChambeau and then a three-way playoff that Abe Answer ends up winning against Hideki Matsuyama and Sam Burns. But it's also frustrating for me because I look at the PGA Tour and I say, you are supposed to represent uh, golf at its highest level, pinnacle of golf. You have all the most talented professionals at your disposal, and yet you're leaning into this race for length, um, this rise of technology, this embracing on the professional level of hotter and more forgiving clubs that kind of shrink everybody at a professional level into a similar space. In the past, you have less forgiving clubs with smaller club faces, which means if you are very skilled at hitting the absolute dead center of the club face, that is a great separator from a ball striking perspective between you and your contemporaries. Uh, That's a great boon for Tiger Woods during his heyday. And when you create club faces, especially on the driver level, that are huge and have very forgiving club faces, and you don't have to be that precise with your ball striking, it becomes less about that specific skill. It shrinks the ends of the spectrum. So now all these people who are talented in their own rights, they're grouped together into the middle. Uh, And so it's less about the skill of striking that very small sweet spot over and over and it's more about this boost in technology and this race for length we've seen that reflected within the numbers you go back to 2000 your average tour player they're driving at 272 yards there's one player on tour at the time who's over 300 john daly he's a barely a blip over at 301.4 on average Uh, in present day enormous jumps 295 yards on average that's a 23 yard jump and there are 58 players on tour right now who average over 300 yards off the tee. Uh, And this, for me, again, it's not a very, it's not an entertaining way to watch golf. Um, Just bomb and gouge. There's no nuance. There's no 
embracing of the cerebral side of the mental side. It's just you hammer it, you hammer it. And the PGA Tour has responded in turn by just saying, okay, well, let's lengthen the course. Let's make every par three 50 yards longer. Let's make this par five 100 yards longer, which is not the answer for a lot of people who really love this all-encompassing endeavor that golf presents, the physical, the mental, uh, the emotional, the stuff that I've talked about before. Uh, One of the great gifts of golf, again, in my opinion, just that when the game is being played, a lot of people with a lot of different skill sets can win doing that. Uh, Why I'm passionate about Lynx Golf, why I did a big episode about the British Open and why it's so appealing, and also why I watch some of these PGA Tour events, whether that's TPC Southwind this last week or uh, probably 80% of the tour stops, and I just go, bleh, whatever. If I wasn't gambling on this event, I wouldn't watch one second of it. Now, what's frustrating is there's a lot of ways that the PGA Tour could implement change on this level in this arms race for length, and they just don't seem like they want to. Uh, Over this weekend as well, the Olympics are winding down, and me being a big basketball fan, I jump in for the United States versus France men's gold basketball game. And I hadn't been watching a lot of basketball when it comes to the Olympics, and I watched all this game. And I had a very shocking reminder of what the NBA game has changed into versus what it could be, yet the NBA doesn't seem that intent on changing uh, down this avenue. Because I watched the gold medal game, the basketball product, fine, yeah, it's great. United States wins, Kevin Durant goes off, Drew Holiday's doing his stuff, cool. But what really stands out to me is that the overall product is fantastic because the parts of the NBA game that I truly and utterly despise is the complaining. It's the rewarded flopping. It's the endless reviews. It's just this willingness and sometimes seems like this incessant need of referees to be the game rather than we're here on the side, you guys decide what's going on, and very rarely do we want to interject and make calls that will drastically change the outcome of the game. So I see a shocking lack of complaining. I see a player like Draymond Green, who that's all he does in the NBA on every single play. And FIBA doesn't reward that. The refs just stand there. And if you do it, they give you a technical foul or they just walk away. And so nobody's complaining on the court, including somebody like Draymond Green. There's no rewarded flopping. All the stuff that is now a part of the NBA game, the running sideways into a player as they're trotting down the court and the ref rewards you with a foul because for some reason that is now considered a defensive foul or the jackknife kicking out of the legs when you're shooting a three and a defender is jumping by and is not going to hit you and now there's contact. Oh, well, maybe we should blow the whistle and stop play. There's so many things about the NBA game that didn't even really exist. They definitely didn't exist 20 years ago and a lot of them didn't exist 10 years ago that are constantly rewarded and a part of the game to the point where now I kind of forget that that doesn't have to be the case. And as I'm watching this gold medal game, I'm reminded of, yeah, why do we just want players to run and fall down and have a ref blow the whistle? Why don't they just do what FIBA refs did, which is if you run and fall down, we just stare at you and then walk off. The most liberating thing that I get is a watcher of basketball. They acted how I want all refs to act within the NBA. Oh, that's an unnatural shooting motion and you fell down and cost yourself a chance at making the shot because you were trying to bait me into 
blowing my whistle and giving you two free throws. Yeah, I'm just not going to do that. And if you bring it up, I'll give you a technical foul, which in the FIBA game is a personal foul too. So all of these things are awesome. And I watch this game and I think about these, you know, stuff that's changed within the game and stuff that can change. And I just, for the life of me, I go, why is a lot of this stuff rewarded within the NBA? Why has the NBA made it a part of their game? Uh, players are incentivized to do a lot of this stuff because of the way that the NBA dictates it should be called on a refereeing level. How have they not solved this flopping stuff yet? Stuff that they always pay lip service to and act like they're going to care about it. And then we have to watch another game where every player is complaining after every single call and every player is falling down after every single play and people who fall down the most are getting rewarded with free throws and James Harden shooting 20 free throws a game and, and just stuff that exists within the NBA that now has become commonplace, I look at and go, how are the powers that be within the NBA not looking at an event like this and seeing it play out literally in front of their eyes and not saying there are a lot of things that we could incorporate into our game that would make it better 100% for every single person who likes watching basketball. And yet it just seems like they're at this weird position where they don't, feel compelled to change these things about their game, whether it's complaining, whether it's flopping, whether it's just the incessant reviews, they don't feel compelled to change them, despite the fact that every person who watches their game thinks that it is atrocious on those specific levels. So these are kind of my observations from the weekend as I'm thinking about change and I'm thinking about all these sports that I love, the one that's upcoming football and the two that you know I'm watching over this weekend. Um, and all of these sports and every other sport alongside them, they're obviously they're going to continue changing in various ways. And it's kind of the curse or the blessing of time continuing to move, whether or not you believe that these changes are good or whether or not you believe that they are bad. The emphasis on passing in football and kind of this more homogenized way of playing offense within the collegiate game. This emphasis on length within the world of golf, this emphasis on complaining and flopping and the allowing of it to happen, period, within the NBA. Some of these changes, you know, maybe they're blips on the radar. Some of these changes, they might be built for the long haul. Um, But either way, we'll go back to the start. Bob Dylan, because as he always does, he put it best. Present now will later be past for the times they are changing. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This show is produced by Weston Tanner and can be consumed in a variety of ways. You can download it as a podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or the platform of your choice. You can also view it in video form via the Beehive TV app, which can be downloaded on Apple, Google, Roku, and Amazon Fire. For more information, go to noballer.com.